David Stewart used to practice law in Washington, D.C. He gave that up over 15 years ago to write history. His first book was all about the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia called The Summer of 1787. That was in 2008. A year later, he wrote about the trial of Andrew Johnson. Then he focused on Aaron Burr, next James Madison. Now in 2021, he takes a look at George Washington and, in David Stewart's words, his mastery of politics. David Stewart, you start Chapter 46 with On March 4, 1793, Washington walked the single block from his residence to Congress Hall where he was to deliver his second inaugural address in the Senate chamber on the second floor. And then you go into a bunch of things that he said. Uh, tell us about that moment in his history. It really stuck out for me because um, he was renowned for his fine manners, his courtesy, his understanding of the moment and how to match his words to the moment. And that was an occasion on which he didn't do that. <laughs> he, he, he was very grumpy about having to serve another term as president. He really didn't want to do it. And he gave the shortest inaugural address in history. Um, it's 200-some words, four sentences. They were long sentences. Um, and he basically said, um, this was an honor. Thank you. Um, if I mess up, you can impeach me. And then he sat down. <laughs> And it was as ill-tempered as he ever was in public. Um, and I think it is a measure um, of, of just how unhappy he was to um, be called upon to serve again. He felt he had to do it, um, but he really wanted to go home. He was 61 years old. This was in Philadelphia, where... We had the capital at that time. And I'm just going to uh, repeat to you some of the words that you wrote. You, of course, you said it was the shortest, most honorary inaugural address ever. <laughs> that is speech seethed with, re, with resentment. It wasn't quite civil. And as you just explained, he was in a sullen mood. He f was feeling his age, admitting to bad memory, difficulty recalling details. He was 61 years old. Both of us are not considerably, but significantly older than he was then. What was that all about? Well, I think his years had been harder than yours or mine, or at least than mine. I shouldn't be. <laughs> no, I think that's true. fair. That's fair. Yes. Um, no, he'd been sleeping out in the cold uh, way more nights. Um, he'd been, uh, he, he worked incredibly long days. Uh, he did physical um he, he invo was involved with physical activity uh, his whole life until he became president, frankly. Uh, his management of the, his uh, plantation was very much hands-on. I mean, he did the work himself sometimes, which uh, when he was dis dissatisfied with how others did it. And uh, he really was feeling his years. Um, he had a terrible uh, premonition of early death. He did make it to 67, but the Washington men, in fact, tended to die quite early. And so 
he he really thought that you know this next four year term might be a death sentence. I looked up the uh, second inaugural address that he gave, um, and just this quote. Uh, near the end of it, it says, if it shall be found during my administration of the government, I have in any instance violated willingly or knowingly the injunction thereof, I may, parentheses, besides incurring constitutional punishment, parentheses, be subject to the upbraidings of all who are now witnesses of the present solemn ceremony. Now, you talk about his early inaugural address, his first one, and then his farewell speech. Did he write this thing himself? Do you know? We don't really know. There's no evidence of correspondence back and forth with someone. It would be very unusual for him to give a speech like that, an important speech, without consulting um, the people he trusted to write for him. Um, He always was shy and modest about his own intellectual and uh, educational uh, background. And he would reach out usually to James Madison or to Alexander Hamilton um, to, you know, sort of uh, pretty up what the ideas he wanted to get across. But we have no evidence that he did that in this instance. And certainly anyone who was consulted about this would have said, um, this isn't a great idea, sir. <laughs> and, um, you know, uh, he probably didn't talk to Madison because they were growing distant at the time. Um, it's hard to imagine he didn't talk to Hamilton, but, you know, I do think those were very much his sentiments, to be sure, and very likely his words. The first time you and I talked was back in 2008 when you wrote the book, The Summer of 1787 which was about the Constitutional Convention. And I've probably asked you this before, but uh, I'm going to do it again. When did you first think you wanted to write for a living about history in the period we're talking about right now instead of practicing law, which you had done for years here in Washington? I I was doing a case in – I was writing a brief for the Supreme Court in a constitutional case and got ensnarled over an issue that uh, I was frustrated that the associate who was working with me had not produced the sort of supporting material I thought should be out there. Um, So I told him to give me the debates of the Constitutional Convention and I would read them myself and, you know, I would fix it. You know, this is the sort of heroic self-image that lawyers have of themselves. And um, I don't know that I fixed it particularly, but I do know that reading that transcript really uh, changed the course of my life. Um, It's not really a transcript, it's notes. It's about 500 pages. And I was knocked out by how serious these people were, how thoughtful, um, how smart, and how much they understood that they were standing at an incredible junction in history and had a chance to leave an indelible imprint on it. And they did. And I just thought to myself, I had read about the Constitutional Convention. I'd read books about it. But nothing seemed to capture what was coming through to me. And I thought, gee, I'd like to do that. Um, But I had children in college, (laughs) so I didn't right away. Um, but, uh, when I had a chance and the opportunity, um, I, I leapt at it. I read somewhere, I, 
some account that there have been at least 900 books written about George Washington. Why did yeah, you that's, think? That's just the last five years. I know, but why did you think another one was needed, and how did you approach it so it would be not just like every other book? Well, you have to. It takes a certain amount of, um, I guess you could call it arrogance to say, you know, I, I have something more to say. But you know, the Constitutional Convention book was good training for that because. There were plenty of books on that, and I went ahead and wrote one, and people liked it. So I, I don't get intimidated by that. And I thought I – there were two things. One, I'd done three other books on the founding era, and it just seemed to me that I was writing around the main story, which was Washington. You know, he really was the man uh, for 20 years. And I needed to address that. And then I – got focused on this notion, which is in the title, about his political career. You know, we think of him most often, I think, as a, as a soldier, as a uh, farmer, um, and we don't think of him as a working politician. Uh, and he really was for much of his life. He, he would have objected to the characterization because it was no more reputable then as it is, than it is now. But he was, and he was extremely good at it. And I thought I wanted to try to unpack how he got good at it and the ways in which he practiced that craft. Because I read these words in your book, um, and there's been a recent announcement about an award you've been given, um, I wanted to ask you what it meant to you that you got the Society of Cincinnati History Prize and what is the Society of Cincinnati, and why did you have that in your book? Uh, the Society of the Cincinnati was formed at the end of the Revolution by the uh, retiring officers to maintain their fellowship. And one of their provisions, and they saw themselves as protectors of the Revolution, and their descendants can be members of the Society. And it has continued for 200 and almost 250 years. Uh, and they are great enthusiasts of the founding era, um, and they created this uh, history prize, which I actually won once before uh, for my book on Aaron Burr. And it has been given to some wonderful writers, um, including uh, uh, Gordon Wood, uh, Mary Beth Norton. And so it's a tremendous honor, uh, and I'm, I'm very uh, flattered and uh, delighted that that they thought this book was wor was worthy. We started chapter forty six, and the title of it is Second Term Blues," and the very brief, shortest inaugural address in history. Um, but on that same page, you know, is it, first of all, it's Philadelphia. And on that same page, you mentioned Mount Vernon, and I have to say, you probably mentioned Mount Vernon more than anything in the throughout the book all all the time and i bring that up for two reasons one why was mount vernon so important to george washington and how much time did you spend there to write this book uh the easy question is i there in residence for a month on a fellowship which was wonderful and of course i'd been there before just as a tourist um and i've spoken there uh, and they have been very supportive, and they have uh, resources there. But 
the space at Mount Vernon is really the magical part of it. Um, the rooms he lived in, frankly, the room he died in. Uh, and Mount Vernon was terrifically important to him. Uh, we think of him as this you know, man who knew nothing but success. But in fact, he was a terribly ambitious guy who was not marked for success. Um, he was not born to a great family. Um, he had to uh, scramble as a young man and make his own way. George was the third son, and third son didn't get much in those days. And George didn't get much when his father died. He was only 11. But his brother died young, as Washington men did. Uh, and then his widow and his daughter died also, so George basically lucked into it. And it was a tremendous symbol to him of his arrival as a person of, of note, a person of actor. Three times in your book, you mention Mary V. Thompson. Why? Well, she's done wonderful work. She's the uh, resident historian at Mount Vernon. Um, I have relied on her work uh, to some considerable extent. Uh, and in particular, she has a recent book out, um, and she was very helpful to me uh, on this book, but she has a recent book on uh, this condition of uh, the slaves at Mount Vernon and Washington's relationship to them. Uh, it's the unavoidable, the unavoidable subject of regret is the title. Um, and it's for people who really care about this subject, but for people who really care, it's a, it's a real uh, treasure uh, and allowed me to appreciate um, what the, the slave situation was there. It is a subject that we, we can't overlook and, and look away from. Um, and uh, she really made that possible for me. While we're talking on this very day, uh, they're removing a statue of former governor of Virginia, Harry Byrd, former senator, same uh, Harry Byrd from the state of Virginia, removing the statue from Richmond, Virginia. Uh, I ask you about this uh, in relationship to, say, the Washington Monument. Why, if Harry Byrd, who was allegedly or white supremacists, uh, you know, uh, and and George Washington had, as you say in your book, at one point or another over a number of years, uh, managed 700 slaves. Why don't we tear down the Washington Monument? I think it's really the, the decision to tear down a monument, um, to take a name off a, a building or a place, um, needs to look at a whole life. And when you look at Washington's whole life, yes, he was a slave owner for many years, and he did things we would uh, revile. Uh, but he understood and came to understand that the evil that he was part of, and he made an effort. It turned out to be something of a halfway effort, but he made an effort to rectify the evil that he had been part of. And we have to appreciate everything else he did. It wasn't the only thing in his life. Um, his commitment to integrity, to character, to democracy, to the independence of the nation, to building the nation, to unity. I mean, these are 
incredibly valuable things that were part of his legacy. So is his are his years as a slave master. So I can put those all in a balance and say, sure, it's Washington, D.C. He was the person then. He was the man who made it happen. We should be Washington, D.C., but we also shouldn't forget the people um, he, he held in bondage. Well, the Capitol's also removing the statue of John Calhoun, who was a former vice president, a former senator, former secretary of war, former secretary of state. Again, where do you draw this line? How far do you take all this? And how do you make this decision? Who was good and bad and who, you know, who had a fuller life than the next person? Yeah, we're we're going through uh, backflips on this stuff. Uh, You know, you look at, again, the entirety of his life. Calhoun became defined by his commitment to uh, slavery, to preserving it, uh, his uh, extensive involvement in secession to exactly the opposite of what Washington stood for, which was unifying the nation uh, and preserving the Union. Uh, and I think that makes him a much more vulnerable character and by by any uh, analysis. But, you know, I'm not going to say it's it's a simple thing. What part of this book was the hardest for you to write? Well, the hardest and the most gratifying, frankly, was the period uh, which I sort of anecdotally referred to as the uh, wilderness years after he serves as a military leader in the French and Indian War. It doesn't go terribly well, and he leaves military service. And then there's about a 16-year period, which most biographers skip or or treat very lightly. Um, But I think it's a terribly important time. He's in private life to a large extent, but he also serves in the House of Burgesses. He's a colonial legislator for 16 years, longer than he was a soldier. Um, he serves on the Fairfax County Court, which has a lot of local administrative and government responsibilities. Again, he's learning about government. He is learning how people relate to government, how politics works. And I think it is also a time when he, he grows up. You know, as we get older, we all like to think that we're getting a bit smarter or at least less um, impetuous, and he certainly did. And he's a very different fellow at the end of this period. So getting the information about his time in the House of Burgesses was difficult to do. Um, the records are incomplete. Same with his time on the county court. But putting that together with his own diaries, which are also incomplete, I felt like I could fill out the profile of a a man who was becoming something extraordinary and in a way that um, I I hope is valuable to people. I'm going to quote back to you something you wrote and ask you how you know this. You you say that George Washington was a man of action with a breathy voice. Uh, There are accounts that he didn't have a very good voice um, that um, he, he, uh, his voice didn't carry, uh, and that he his voice reflected lung ailments. Um, and there is a 
he, he was sick for a large, athletic, powerful, physically powerful man. Uh, it's impressive how often he was sick, um, which just reflects the state of medicine in those days. They didn't have antibiotics and they didn't understand a lot of illnesses. And he had several bouts of six months of illness. Uh, and at least one of them seems to have left him with an unimpressive voice. And in those days, you know, oratory was a key element of your public persona. And certainly people like Patrick Henry or, or John Adams, these were fine speakers. And he wasn't. And he was very uh, modest about it. And he had to find other ways to excel and other ways to leave his imprint on his time. And I, I think that's a, an interesting thing. I mean, none of us has everything. Uh, we've all got something that isn't quite as and we're not as tall as we'd like to be, or we're not as um, quick-witted, or w whatever it is. And how you work around that um, is a challenge we all face. You um, say that he denied having political talent or ambition, and you suggest that that was disingenuous. <laughs> I do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I was struck, and I hadn't seen anybody else notice this, but... In, in the House of Burgess's records during colonial era, uh, every time a new royal governor showed up in Virginia, he would give a speech and to the House of Burgess's, you know, his first greeting to the uh, legislature. And he would always say, um, you know, I am not equal to this task, uh, and I hope you will overlook my mistakes and understand that they are simply uh, taken because I am not worthy not because my heart is uh, black or I'm, you know, I mean to do harm. And Washington gives that speech repeatedly when he is, is presented with an honor or an elevation or some new office. And it was simply what you did. It's what you said in that era. Um, you know, today we're all about self-promotion and social media and it's say you're, you're great. Nobody does that anymore. But in the 18th century, in the sort of British culture that we were part of, um, that's what you said. And so he said it. Um, did he really believe it? Uh, I doubt it. I mean, he had a lot of instances where he knew he had proved to have better judgment or been smarter than a lot of other people. So, you know, he, he wasn't kidding himself. It's just what you said. I, you'd probably be offended if I say to you that I'm going to ask you a lightning round of questions, which is a cliche. <laughs> but it would be interesting to have you fill the blanks in on a number of things. And and I don't expect you to give, uh, you know, 14 paragraph answers on this. But so we can just bring people up to date if they don't know the answer to these simple questions. And I'm going to go down through a list of them. What was the stamp? Right. What was the Stamp Act, and where was he around that act? It was a taxing act and, uh, approved by Parliament in 1765 to make the. Uh, it applied to legal papers and playing cards, bunch of things, uh, and was designed to pay for the French and Indian War expenses. Uh, Americans didn't like paying taxes. Certainly didn't like having them imposed from Britain and. Washington, there was big opposition, and Washington sort of sat that one out. He was not 
very deeply involved in the opposition to the Stamp Act. When was it repealed? It was repealed quickly, within a year or maybe two, um, but it was replaced by other uh, uh, taxes, the Townshend Acts, and acts that which triggered more opposition. And uh, Washington did get involved in the fray in fighting over the Townshend Acts. Shays Rebellion. Uh, it was an uprising focused in Massachusetts, although there were comparable risings in many other states, uh, which objected to uh, the taxes that were being imposed and the uh, 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 confiscations that the Massachusetts courts were imposing on uh, people who could not pay their taxes. Uh, it ultimately, it, uh, close to 3,000 people were part of it. Um, and it was unsuccessful, but it had the effect in 1786 of scaring a lot of people like George Washington into thinking that we needed a more powerful government, and it led to a more powerful central government, and it led to the Constitutional Convention. Where would George Washington have been in 1786? He was in Mount Vernon. Whiskey Rebellion. Yeah, we're a contentious group, and we don't like to pay taxes. The Whiskey Rebellion uh, was an objection to a liquor excise tax, which Washington had supported. It was proposed by Alexander Hamilton. In 1793, it ripened. Uh, there were uh, actions taken by people, principally in western Pennsylvania, but in other states as well, against tax collectors. Uh, and Washington thought it was essential to establish the integrity of the government and to ensure unity to have a strong response. He uh, put together an army of 12,000 militiamen, which marched west in Pennsylvania, and basically the opposition melted away. There was not a single drop of bloodshed, uh, and the Whiskey Rebellion was no more. What was the Jay Treaty? In 1793 and four, England was fighting with France. Uh, this was the fallout of the French Revolution. And as a result, they wanted to, both sides were seizing American cargoes and ships. We were a great trading nation. Our ships were all over Europe uh, and we were a neutral. We wanted to trade with both sides. Both sides didn't want us to uh, trade with the other side. So they targeted our ships, and there was a lot of uh, inclination to get involved in that war in this country. Washington did not want to do that. He thought the greatest risk was with Britain because they had the Royal Navy. They could really reach us. They were in Canada. And he sent John Jay to Britain to come to an agreement um, which wasn't great, but did stave off um, war, which, I mean, Washington, like many ex-military men, um, hated war and understood what a catastrophe it is for everyone involved, and he was uh, committed to avoiding it. You mentioned war. What, in your opinion, I mean, you write a lot about how he wasn't successful a number of times in his military uh, history, but where was he successful? What would, in your opinion, be the turning point of the Revolutionary War? 
There are several, uh, to be honest. Uh, his uh, the, uh, the Trenton and Princeton battles uh, basically got us back from the brink when we really might have just folded up and lost. Uh, the Saratoga battle, which he had nothing to do with, was tremendously important for getting France involved on our side. Um, the Monmouth battlefield created legitimacy for the uh, Continental Army and Yorktown, of course, um, where we captured an entire army. Now, the French were central to that effort, but Washington and the Continental Army were there as well and important. So he had good innings. Um, he also had bad innings. But he held the army together. He showed remarkable leadership, and he understood. Um, and Nathaniel Green wrote something wonderful about it, and he basically said, well, they can occupy uh, cities, but they cannot occupy the whole country, which is a basic truism of guerrilla warfare, which we have learned in the 20th and 21st century. And, you know, occupying powers don't usually succeed. I, this may sound like a strange question, but why have we not learned more? You you talk more about him in your book, and I've seen in a lot of books about George Washington, more about Henry Knox. And was yeah. he and was he important? Well, you know, he, yeah, yeah, he was fat. <laughs> you know, so uh, he, he didn't look that good, um, and his part of the war effort he was head of artillery you know and the artillery doesn't have heroic charges uh, he was never in command of a unit himself he was always with washington and then he was secretary of war in a time when we were at peace basically so he didn't get any brilliant moments that we remember uh and, and it's a, it's a disservice he was as close to washington as anybody was and they had a final falling out which is a sad thing but until then um he, he was essential in someone washington whose judgment washington relied on greatly for 20 years along the way when you wrote this book and the others you you know we read about aaron burr and uh, andrew johnson and James Madison and others. Is there somebody that you discovered that you'd like to write a book about besides George Washington? You know, uh, I have to sort of duck that one because that's exactly what's keeping me up at night right now. <laughs> Writing about somebody uh, new or thinking about somebody new? Uh, who, who I want to write about. Um, it, 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 I think Doris Kearns Goodwin said you have to think really long and hard about who you're going to write a book about because you're going to live with that person for a long time. And that's certainly true. I mean, writing about Andrew Johnson was actually not that much fun. Uh, <laughs> I didn't enjoy his company. Um, so that's something uh, I, I'm, I'm working through. At the end of your book, chapter 53, you talk about his death. And... Um, I want to go over this with you. First of all, the day he died, how many doctors came to visit him? Uh, three doctors. Uh, together or separately? No, they each came separately. Uh, the lead physician was his friend of 40 years, uh, Dr. Craig, James Craig, um, who called in other physicians because he could see how sick 
Washington was. Washington had contracted a uh, inflammation of his th- throat, and he was he was suffocating. Uh, his throat was closing off, um, and so he called two other physicians uh, he hoped would help him, uh, but unfortunately, none of them really knew any more than any of them. So uh, they they may well have accelerated Washington's death, but they certainly did not help him. What is this business that they did back in those days, bleeding? And you say that he was bled four times. Yeah, they they took a lot of blood. And actually, his wife, Martha, stopped them at one point and said, basically, stop. You know, you, this is not helping. Uh, and it had to do with a very primitive notion, which was wrong, that there was there were humors and bad things floating in people's blood. And if you got it out, then they would manufacture new blood and get healthy. Um, and all it really did was weaken people. Uh, and it took decades and decades to uh, for the medical community, such as it was, to figure it out that this was not a good idea. Um, and there was one young physician there who wanted to try to do a tracheotomy. They understood the concept of a tracheotomy, which is to cut a, make a small cut in the throat in the windpipe and put in an artificial pipe uh, to help him breathe and avoid the inflammation, uh, the part that was closed off. Um, and, he, and Craig would not allow him to do that. And it, the consensus among physicians trying to figure this out today is that um, Craig was right, that they didn't know how to do it. They didn't have sterile uh, things. This guy, had, this young doctor, had never done it before. Um, he might well have just killed Washington right there. Um, now, was it worth a shot because he was going to die anyway? Well, that's easy to say at, at this point. But as a medical decision, uh, I have seen it mostly defended. You mentioned Tobias Lear from time to time. Who was he? He was Washington's personal secretary for about his last 15 years of life and terribly devoted to him. He was a New Hampshireman. Um, Washington was not parochial or provincial and insisting that he only be surrounded by people from uh, Virginia or the South. And frankly, he seemed to have a a good rapport with people from New England. Uh, He was an enterprising fellow, and uh, I think he found their attitudes generally congenial with his. And he had a Harvard degree? Uh. You, that could be true. I don't recall specifically. I do know that he was one of the people, you know, Washington had an avalanche of correspondence his whole uh, mature life as a political figure, and he always needed somebody close to him who could answer that correspondence. Well, there, um, so he needed someone good. The only reason words. I mention that is um, how much education did George Washington have? Well, you know, we don't really know. He he never spoke of it, and uh, he uh, he had no favorite teacher that he remembered uh, fondly. We do have a workbook he did. We, it looks like he had about three years of actual education. We're not even sure if it was a tutor or if he was in a uh, small school in Fredericksburg, which was where his family was living at the time. Um, and we can see from 
his work that he was good at arithmetic and uh, mathematical things, uh, practical things. Um, he was not gifted with the written word, and that was something he worked on his whole life to get better at. You write that when Lear, Tobias Lear, read out a statement by Madison, James Madison, praising James Monroe, Washington offered an acid comment. Now, this is on his when he was dying. Uh, what was the reason for the acid comment? Washington had sent Monroe to France as our minister, our ambassador, and Monroe had uh, gotten very engaged with the French revolutionaries uh, and had been enthusiastically supporting them in a way that Washington disliked because he felt it compromised his foreign policy, and he was very unhappy about that. And uh, so he recalled Monroe and uh, was very uh, critical of him. Monroe wrote a self-aggrandizing uh, account of the whole situation, which it, it's a wonderful document. Washington read very carefully and wrote in the margin the things he disagreed with. And, I mean, he's just totally uh, unburdened himself with his lack of respect for James Monroe. Uh, so uh, it, it's totally credible that he made a snide remark about him, uh, even in, while not feeling very well. All these years later, um, Mount Vernon is completely run by a non-governmental institution, the Mount Vernon Ladies Association, no federal taxpayer money involved in it. And it's the most visited of all the presidential homes. Why do you think that's the way that developed compared to all the rest that uh, um, that are supported by the taxpayer? Well, it predated the time. I mean, it, this is in the 1850s when the Mount Vernon Ladies Association had its roots, and it was a one remarkable woman uh, who who started it and uh, led a nationwide fundraising campaign. The family had been unable to keep up the property in a way that was thought to be fitting for the the father of our country, and he was a you know an immense figure uh, to Americans in the 19th century. Uh, today, he's a more distant figure. Then he was a very uh, uh, someone whose presence was felt uh, in, in the new country. And so uh, she was able to raise the money. Uh, they were not able to restore the building really until after the Civil War. That intervened. And it's a fascinating episode that there was an informal agreement between the Confederate and Union forces that uh, Mount Vernon was, was neutral ground. And uh, they soldiers from both armies would visit uh, to pay homage to Washington. They both claimed Washington as their forebear. And uh, there was never any fighting around uh, Mount Vernon. As you know, we haven't even uh, touched the surface, uh, below the surface of, of this book that you've written, which is over 500 pages. The last question I wanted to ask you, how much fun was it to do 100 pages plus of footnotes? Uh, <laughs> it's pretty much the worst. Uh, uh, and, you know, you have to do it. Uh, you have to show your work um, both so, you know, other writers and scholars can see that I have a basis for what I'm saying, 
and also in the future just to help people who want to follow up on a subject that's there to point to them to the things that I found so they don't have to reinvent that. Uh, it, it's not a ton of fun. Um, sometimes you get to put asides and digressions in a footnote and in an end note, and, and that's sort of gratifying. But mostly uh, it's just a really long trip to the dentist. Do, do you do them as you go, or did you do them when you finished writing the book? Well, you have to do them as you go, or you would forget, um, or at least I would. Um, so, but then when you're done, or you think you're done, uh, you have to go back and see if they make any sense to you, if that's a plausible citation, and you end up having to check some of them to be sure they're okay. Um, so it's uh, it's a pretty long process. Our guest is the author of George Washington, The Political Rise of America's Founding Father, David O. Stewart. Thank you very much, sir. My great pleasure, Brian. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org. 